0: Instagram, private jets, fast cars, and throwing money into the air like confetti were only a few of the posts real estate mogul and social media influencer Hush Puppy was known for making. Little did he know, he was leaving a digital trail for all us here at the FBI, and that flaunting led us to the truth a massive money laundering scam. In total, He had stolen $1.6 in United Arab Emirates, Durham. It's a crime that will leave you speechless. I know I was. Here's the scoop on just how he did it, what he was spending all that money on, and how he was finally caught. Sometimes, things can get pretty slow here at the Federal Bureau of Investigation. I know growing up, I thought it would be like I saw in the movies, you know, arresting the criminal masterminds of the world and bringing them to justice. Look, here's the truth about the job. Not all cases have stories worthy of worldwide news coverage. Spoiler alert, many times this line of work is a 9 to 5 like any other, with a lot of paperwork. But sometimes there's a case that's so out of this world that we feel we've earned our $66,000 per year salary. Hush Puppy was one such case. Here's a bit of backstory on Hush Puppy, in case you didn't know. I know I didn't. But frankly, I'm not on Instagram all that much. His real name, Ramon Abbas, He is a social media influencer and a self-proclaimed real estate mogul from Nigeria. For what it's worth, he definitely knows how to play the social media game. Mr. Abbas has over 2.5 million followers and at 37 years old, he has made millions of dollars. Dollars he now very publicly spends and posts all sorts of lavish lifestyle pictures to the internet. And when I say lavish, I definitely mean it. Common posts for Mr. Hushpuppy shows him standing in front of what we can only assume are private jets, going on huge shopping sprees where he is seen splurging on clothes from Gucci, Versace, and Vendi, where shirts can cost $1,000 or more. Oh, and of course tons of photos of him in front of a multitude of super fast and super expensive cars some of his favorite driving machines are a $300,000 Rolls-Royce or his $200,000 Ferrari but he also lived in an incredibly expensive and exclusive Palazzo Versace in Dubai he even has videos online of him taking off from a helicopter right from his home on the waterfront. Basically, this man did everything he could to let people know he was rich. Very, very rich. And Hushpuppy soon learned that his talent for curating a social media following, I mean, who wouldn't want to live vicariously through this man's millionaire lifestyle? would give us here at the FBI everything we could ever need to secure his arrest. See, here's the thing about Hush Puppy. He made all of his money illegally by a scheme called money laundering. The idea behind money laundering is simple. Basically, someone will conceal the real source of their money. In Hush Puppy's case... He had stolen millions from banks, private investors, and companies by tricking them into putting money into an account that they were then using for their own purchases. When our team here at the FBI got a chance to look at the evidence we'd collected after his arrest, we found phone and email records that contained over 100,000 fraud files and over 2 million addresses that looked to be potential victims. The companies that Hash Puppy targeted spanned over two continents. It was a worldwide crime. He had stolen $923,000 when a paralegal at a New York law firm wired money into an account that belonged to Mr. Abbas this paralegal had received instructions to wire the money into a certain bank account that Abbas and his team tricked them into using. And that $923,000 was meant to go to a client's real estate refinancing. It instead went to anything Mr. Abbas wanted. But that's just one instance of Abbas's manipulation He stole 14.7 million dollars from a foreign financial institution, having them send money into a Romanian bank account. Other evidence shows that he also used tricked victims into putting money into United States bank accounts as well. Arguably, his biggest potential scam was when he tried to steal 124 million dollars from an English Premier League soccer club. Luckily, all we know about this attempted scam is just that, it was an attempt. To be honest, this kind of criminal activity makes us FBI agents sick to our stomachs. Last year alone, upwards of $1.7 billion were stolen by means of cyber fraud. It's an ongoing problem that just doesn't seem to go away, like a scar of guilt. That won't fade with time.
1: I'm Las Vegas criminal defense attorney Michael Becker. There is no Nevada law that prohibits the concealed carry or open carry of firearms in casinos. Even if the casino puts up a sign that says, No guns allowed, those signs carry no legal weight. However, casinos are private institutions and can make their own ground rules. Therefore, Casino security has every right to order gun carriers to leave the property. And if gun carriers refuse to leave or stay away when asked, they could be charged with trespass. As a misdemeanor, trespass carries up to six months in jail and or up to $1,000 in fines. Plus, the casino could permanently ban the person from ever coming back. Even if a casino permits guns on its premises, it is always a Category C felony in Nevada to conceal carry without a current and valid CCW permit from Nevada or a reciprocal state. The penalties include one to five years in prison and possibly up to $10,000 in fines but CCW permit holders who simply forget to bring their permit with them face just a $25 civil fine. A lot of innocent people get accused of firearm crimes in Nevada. If you're facing criminal charges, call my legal team at 702 Defense. The experienced criminal defense attorneys at the Las Vegas Defense Group have helped thousands of people get their charges reduced or dismissed, while saving their gun rights. Nobody wants to find out that they have an outstanding warrant. And we get a lot of calls from people that have uh, gone to renew their license at the DMV, for example, and found out that they had a warrant. Uh, maybe they were arrested. Maybe they were just told about it. Uh, sometimes people get pulled over and an officer may write them a citation and not actually arrest them on the warrant but inform them that they have a warrant. But whatever the facts and circumstances may be, it's never fun to find out that you have a warrant for your arrest. Uh, Depending on what type of warrant it is, we may be able to go into court for you and have the court quash the warrant. Uh, Quashing the warrant basically means uh, when you appear either personally or through counsel, the court once again has jurisdiction over you. They no longer have to utilize the warrant to arrest you and bring you before the court. When you voluntary voluntarily appear before the court, there's a pretty good chance that the court will quash the warrant, allow you to remain out of custody until you resolve your legal matter. A warrant can lie for uh, a felony charge, a misdemeanor charge, or even a traffic ticket. And it's very important to clear up your warrants because obviously uh, nobody wants to go to jail, ex- especially unexpectedly. So um, if you have a warrant, um, call 702-DEFENCE. Uh,
2: when, I, when, I, when I go out of town, I actually go to Peachy. I Park go is, in. That's what I was It's seven fifty a day. Yes. And he said, "Yo, he'll just go down there, pay the seven fifty, yes. leave, they go pick it that's up." That's
3: what I was doing before I got my lot, and was right. crazy. I was paying all this money to Peachy this whole time, not knowing that the lot that i was soon to have was right next to it.
2: Right I
3: next had, door. Um, here's the here's the clutch clutch play. So Peachy, they use a third party called Wait W-A-Y, W A Y W A Y and I was paying half the price that Peachy charges.
2: On way. On way. Yo, they be having joints for $2, That's what I was paying.
3: $2, because this was before I knew about the airport drop. I'm like, I'm not going to be paying $36 for these parking tickets. I'm
2: going
3: to drop the car off at the airport, Mm -hmm. parking lot, Peachy, pay $2, and then charge the guests for the the $2. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) (laughs) And then, so, the beautiful thing is they'll pick the car up, from Peachy, going about their way to travel. When they drop the car off at Peachy, they can take the Peachy shuttle back to the airport. Mm. Smooth process. Perfect, perfect. Smooth process. I love it, it. If I have to pick up the car, or one of my team members have to pick up the car, right? they'll take the train, because Atlantic Station, there's a train that goes straight to the airport, so they don't have to worry about driving, getting caught in traffic. It was a smooth ride to the airport, pick the car up, and move on from there.
2: So what's so uh, and it's so crazy because you've been doing this for only two years. Two years, We're going crazy. And you're just now you just now put out your course and yeah, that's a fact. Yo, I, I don't know how many courses you sold, <laughs> like the like the first release. Yeah, right?
3: it, be, it's, it's ridiculous. Knocking on my door for this.
2: Yes. because people been asking you for yes. for two years, yes. yo. Put me on. Yes,
3: I've been sharing this. Yeah, and I and I saw, right, right, right. But you know, my my boys, they, they was like, bro, drop the course, package right. this material, and drop in, in a course form. So I ain't gonna lie, him five hundred Marcus, he he was on my neck, mm-hmm. Neo on my neck about dropping a course, yeah. calling me, bro, you gotta drop a course. You know how he talking. Right. You gotta drop the course, or we're gonna do it. <laughs> I'm like, oh, 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 chill out, chill, <laughs> I,
4: chill
3: <laughs> I, What you mean you're gonna drop the tour? All right, all right, I'll, I'll drop it next week. Right, right. So I posted my Instagram, like, yo, everybody, I'm dropping this course. Here's the date. I didn't even build it out yet. I knew setting a date is gonna force me to do it. Because mm. I'm so used to giving out the game for free, enjoying the, the responses, that I didn't feel right charging for it. Yeah. Right? But that. I got a bar with that where if I don't charge, you know how meals to be talking yeah. to. If I don't charge, they're not gonna put it into action. They're not yeah. gonna respect it. You already know that how that sure. works, too. So I said, cool, I'm gonna charge. See, I'm gonna test out the price. I charged $12.99. As soon as I put on my Instagram stories, I'm launching the course, I'm doing pre-sales, cash at me. I got. Cash at. Cash, cash at went crazy. Man, man, look at my cash up right here. Where My phone at. Let me see. Cash up right now. Cash t- it wasn't a link. It wasn't
2: a no credit card.
3: And they trust me. Most people are like now. Nah, that's the fact. That's the fact. And
2: I believe because you built a. And you know, for those that know you, know like you are a very credible person. Yeah, yeah, very honest. Like I'm it's man. not. We know that like Excuse money me. ain't your biggest thing. Yeah, yeah. You feel me? So. When you put out something, they're like, yo, I'm here for it. I rock it. That's a with
3: fact. It. That's what happened, man. I got instant feedback. I, I didn't know that people were willing to pay for this information, but I had to stop devaluing, devaluing this information. This information, if I had it, I would have saved that $2,800. Yeah. I would have saved all the money I lost in the beginning stages, st- stages to the point where I now just – Yo, here's the course information. If you need to know, I have it all documented here. So what's,
2: what's, what's in the course? Talk to me about what's whole in the The whole process.
3: Course. How to buy a vehicle. The best way how to not get finessed by the salespeople. <laughs> Anytime <laughs> somebody goes to the dealership, you think That's you're going nice. to be there in there for an hour? How long do most people be in a dealership for? Forever. Four hours, five hours, six hours. And they beat your brain until, until you feel like you would just want to die. Mm. So that's when they get you in the finance room and they have you signing all these, per- oh, you need warranty? It's just going to be an extra $20 on your monthly payment. Right. You
5: sign here.
1: <laughs> man, you me. give me the keys, <laughs> man. Give me
3: the money. It prevents that in that section. Right. I teach how to uh, figure out what business model you want. Do you want to be an owner in this business, meaning you cash out a car or finance a car under your name, or do you want to be a broker where... You're a middleman between the cars, mm-hmm. meaning you don't have to get the car yourself. David, his Range Rover, somebody wants a Range Rover. I'm in the middle and say, yo, you need a Range Rover? David got it for you. He charges $200 a day. You can pay him directly and run me my $50 for letting you know about that booking. Mm. That's a broker. You're the middleman.
2: Yo, let me ask you this because a guy sent me a DM. Um, hold on. Um, A guy sent me a, I think I made a post about it. And um, a guy, uh, he sent me a DM about um, his car.
4: On this episode of The Lawyer You Know, we talk about how to go from being a lawyer to a judge. Most people know that for some time you have to be a lawyer before you can actually become a judge. And i bring my dad on to explain the process of how a lawyer becomes a judge he served on judicial nominating commissions in the past it's a group who does a lot of work in nominating lawyers and evaluating lawyers that potentially could become judges we've done some podcasts and videos in the past that we'll link below on supreme court justice nominees on the process of becoming a supreme court justice And there are a ton of different judges and judicial positions that come available. So what I want to start out talking about, Dad, is what is the basic requirements for a lawyer to become a judge or even be considered for a judgeship?
6: Well, there are different requirements for different levels of court. We've got four levels of court in Florida. We have the Supreme Court, we have District Courts of Appeal, we have Circuit Courts, we have County Courts for the supreme court the district courts of appeals it's 10 years as a lawyer for county courts and circuit courts it's 5 years of a lawyer uh, of course they have to be members of the Florida bar and they in have Florida. to live right and they have to live within the area that they're applying for a judgeship so if it's a pinellas county judge they have to live in pinellas county
4: if it's a pinellas county position that's open a right. judgeship that's open okay So, you have to be a lawyer for at least five years for those lower-level state courts, and you have to be a lawyer for at least 10 years for the upper-level ones? Correct. Okay, anything else? Or is it just how long you've been a lawyer, basically?
6: Just how long you've been a lawyer. To be eligible. Right. Now, there are are exceptions. If you're in one of those small counties in North Florida where you only have 40,000 people in the county, then you can be just a lawyer and be nominated so you don't have to have
4: any experience right and in
6: fact years ago you didn't even have to be a lawyer to be a judge because those counties were so small sometimes they didn't have a lawyer that lived in the whole county okay but now we're large enough and so we can have this requirement
4: okay so but now you have to be a lawyer have to be a lawyer and in what is the cutoff 40,000 people in your county right so if you have more than 40,000 people in your county you still have to have that five or ten year requirement correct okay Do you have to be a lower court judge like a county court judge or circuit court judge before you can become an appellate court judge or a supreme court judge?
6: There is no requirement for any, there's no on-the-job training
4: requirement or anything like that for you to apply to be a judge. Okay, so we've gotten the basic requirements out, the years of experience in being a lawyer. Talk about the process and the different ways that lawyers can become judges because you don't just apply and become a judge, you have to go through different processes. Explain what those are like.
6: There's two ways in Florida to become a judge. One is you're appointed by the governor or two, you're elected by the people.
4: And what we're talking about right now are state court judges. These are strictly state court judges. Okay, so that's important. We're going to differentiate and talk about federal court later. But right now, everything we're talking about is state court judges. So there's two ways. Appointed by the governor or voted on by the actual county that you're elected in. Right. Okay.
6: The Supreme Court uh, justices and appellate court justices are always, those are always appointed by the governor. It's the circuit court, which we call the trial courts, and the county court. Those
4: are the ones that you can win by election. So the county court and circuit courts that you call the trial court those are the ones that affect your lives those are the ones making the decisions in your cases for the majority of the time they are the ones in criminal court and civil court that if you file a lawsuit or if you get arrested your case is going to come before one of those judges that is usually elected by the local county that they're going to represent so you have a voice you have an opportunity to vote for local judges. And again, shameless plug, but also for extra explanation, we explain the entire voting process for judges and go through the local judges that get voted on in our county on this podcast that we're gonna link in the comments below. Comment if you have any specific questions about how the local elections are handled and what you should look for in judges, how you should vote and if you should vote at all. So make sure you either comment below, go listen to our podcast, you can get more info on that because you actually have a chance to have a voice for the judges that are going to affect your lives. So there are also some situations where judges are appointed to those local positions, whether it's a county court judge or circuit court judge. Why does that happen? And talk a little bit about how long these judges are in office. Well, judges are are in office, I guess, but... On the bench.
6: Well, they're elected for six years, and they have to run again every six years. And I is went, that
4: across the board? Across County, the board. Circuit, appellate, Supreme Court. Correct. All six years. Okay.
6: All six years. The difference is in the appellate court, the Supreme Court, and the district courts of appeal. Those are what's called merit retention votes. So people only vote on right. those judges to say.
7: Hector has access to that account. You're going to get yourself in a mess. We run into it all the time, helping people work through these things. So doing all of that, then you work your debt snowball and work your way back through the inactive accounts and you clear them off by in writing, settle it, in writing, settle it, in writing, settle it, in writing, settle it, and then you're clear. And most of the time... 25 cents on the dollar, 10 cents on the dollar of what they say you owe is going to sound more like about what you originally owed or a little bit less, depending on who you're dealing with, what kind of debt it was and all that kind of thing. But they'll settle with you if you offer them cash now. I will send you money this instant on this debit card, this prepaid debit card off to the side or this checking account off to the side, or I'll send you a... Uh, cashier's check overnight and pay the FedEx charges, but do not let them in your account. You'll get messed up and messed over. Hey guys, thanks for watching. If you enjoyed this video, click the subscribe button to get the latest content and check out these other great clips from the show.
8: yeah that was torture but it built something in me that i hadn't had before then uh it gave me a drive it it, it gave me a, a a commitment that that i had never discovered in myself as a as a 21 year old and and let me just say how it was so easy for me to get caught up in the drug selling when i came home in 1998 because that's what the culture was doing When I came home in 1998, Master P had just dropped an album called Ghetto Dope. Ghetto Dope. Me, 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 crack like this. And it taught you how to cook crack from step one to step 10. So when I came home after being gone from 91 to 98, and I come back and I look into the black community, everybody's selling dope. The dope man image is what the girls want. Is what the preachers like. Everybody like the dope man image. So everybody's selling dope. They rapping about it. So man, I just get in line with the culture. I get in line with the culture because the culture almost made it like it. It was logical to sell dope over working because the rewards were so great, right? So many black children of our culture followed that mon- that bullshit, nigga hustling, selling dope. Me, 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 crack like this. So we went from that to trapping to now drilling and killing. So the culture reshaped me. After all the good that TYC had done, my culture reshaped me in the pimping and the drug dealing. I went back to robbing, nigger snatching purses, all that shit, nigga, because that's what the culture was doing. A category E felony in Nevada would include
1: possession of narcotics, a second time charge for peeping, solicitation of a minor for prostitution, or recruitment into a criminal gang. Most category E felonies would result initially in a sentence of probation, but uh, they could also result in a prison sentence of up to four years in the state prison. For record seal on a category E felony, you are eligible to seek a record seal seven years. After completion of your sentence.
0: You're watching FJTN, the Federal Judicial Television Network.
9: From Washington, D.C., the Federal Judicial Center and the U.S. Sentencing Commission present Sentencing and Guidelines, Basic Application. Here is your moderator for today's program, Nancy Philsoof. Hello. As you just heard, I'm Nancy Philsoof, and I'm a Senior Education Specialist for the Federal Judicial Center. Welcome to this afternoon's broadcast on sentencing and guidelines, basic application. Uh, this is actually a third in the series of broadcasts on sentencing and guidelines that has been presented by the federal judicial center in partnership with the united states sentencing commission let me tell you a little bit about this broadcast we're going to be um, broadcasting for approximately two hours and at that midpoint we'll probably have a five minute break Now, let me tell you more about the broadcast What what we're going to do is a major portion of the broadcast, we are going to be showing a videotape of a training program that the United States Sentencing Commission uh, presented in Clearwater, Florida not too long ago on basic applications. So what we have done is we have divided this tape into four segments. And in between the segments, we have experts from the Sentencing Commission, that we will introduce to you in a few minutes and they will provide commentary on the segments and also they will answer your questions that you will be faxing in um, during the program broadcast. I'll give you the fax number in just a few minutes. Also I want to show you that we have some information that you can find about the broadcast on the Federal Judicial Center DCN website. And there's a lot of very good information about the sentencing commission in here. So I really urge you to get this information if you haven't already done so. Also in this packet, you will notice that we have provided for your convenience a fax form that you can use when you are faxing in your questions to us. Now, before I forget, let me give you the fax number. It's one eight hundred four eight eight 488 also this program has been approved for continuing legal education credit or CLE and you can find out how to apply for this credit also by going to the Federal Judicial Center DCN website I believe I'm finished with my announcements what I'd like to do is to introduce to you my colleagues from the Sentencing Commission First of all, we have Rusty Burrows, who is the Principal Advisor in the Commission, and we also have Rachel Pierce, who is an Education and Sentencing Practice Specialist. And both are from the Office of the Education and Sentencing Practice. Well, Rusty and um, Rachel, welcome to the program. I'm so glad you're here today. Thank you so much, Nancy and I know that you do have some comments that you want to provide to us before we start the first segment so Rachel why don't you start first
5: thank you Nancy good afternoon on behalf of the sentencing commission I'd like to welcome you to sentencing and guidelines basic application today on the pre-recorded videotape you will be seeing instruction from Andy Purdy in the office of general counsel Frank Larry in the Office of Education and Sentencing Practice, and Rusty Burris. As, Je- as Nancy mentioned earlier, this videotape was originally taped at the 8th Annual National Seminar on Sentencing Guidelines, which occurred in Clearwater, Florida in 1999. Rusty, would you like to tell us a little bit more about how the broadcast is going to go today? be glad to.
10: Uh, As you know from the title of our program today, the focus is on basic guidelines application. And we're going to do that by breaking it down into four segments. In the first segment, we're going to look at uh, some of the general application principles. We'll look at the Chapter 2 guidelines for offenses. We'll also look at the Chapter 3 adjustments. In our second segment, we'll look at criminal history determinations and also how to use the sentencing table in coming up with an appropriate guideline range. Uh, In the third segment, we'll look at relevant conduct, and then in the fourth segment, we'll look at multiple counts with just a brief uh, look at departures. Now, after segments one and three, uh, Rachel, you and I will be coming back to just make a few comments. Uh, After segments two and four, uh, we'll be coming back to take the uh, questions that the uh,
1: viewers will
11: be asking us
1: uh, and in terms of the be very stigmatizing
11: boy is definitely ha- happy with this decision because he took the to social media and made a statement immediately when this happened or you know as soon as it, it made news now in his post on social media rack boy had this to say man And it just seemed like, man, he was really, really excited about the judgment. But this is what he said verbatim. He said, this has been a very lengthy and tedious process. I'm grateful for the outcome and I'm thankful it's all behind me. I'm excited to get back into the studio and continue creating music for my fans. I wish the best for all parties on current and future endeavors. It's Rack Boys, SZN. Are you dumb? And then I don't know what emoji that is, but it looks like a circle and then hashtag Rack Boys hashtag jersey. So man, it looks like man things are looking up for Rack Boy. And he was even posted he even reposted some of the people who took the to social media to make memes about the situation like this. He reposted this man or somebody they posted the the they took his head and put it on Chris Tucker's face from the uh, Rush Hour movie and it basically says this, it said Boy Cam all summer after winning that 1.7 million laughing emojis nothing but you know what you know what you know what for him now man and I had to block out those other things because you know they're not good for this platform now Rackboy thought it was funny obviously because he posted this he said chill y'all cooking on the internet and it was more memes that people were posting but man." It goes to show that, you know, he was taking this real well. Of course, because he won. But, man, it seems like PMB rocking them might be punching this punching the air right now, man. They thinking about that money that they just lost. Now, in the news article, it doesn't say what type of, you know, judgment it was. It doesn't say where, where they sued in Civil court. I'm sure it was, man, because, I mean, I don't know, man. When it comes to copyrights, I'm not really sure. But it just seems like, man, for them, for all the news publications and, you know, hip-hop sites to pick this up, it must have been a clear-cut deal, and this is official, man. So it looks like Rackboy got a little bit of change to invest into his music career. And P&B rocking them, they're going to lose on the front end and a little bit of the publishing and all that on the back end. But I don't think this is going to hurt their career in any type of way, man. I mean, wife and Lucci... His hands are full right now. He's got his thing that he's dealing with. And P&B Rock is still just making sure that he's cranking out hits. I know he just did a joint pretty much with everybody from OTF, including a song with uh, King Von that that they did together before he passed away. So it seems like he's back in that mode to be working on music. So all in all, maybe this is a win for everybody. I don't know. I'm just trying to keep it positive, I guess. But what do you guys think, man? Do you think that taking this hit to your pocket for Wyatt and PNB Rock specifically is one of the worst things that can happen in the music business? I'll tell you this, man. After looking at a whole bunch of stories, this is a common occurrence. This happens all the time. People pay money to get things right. The other person gets a little piece of the song. Things move on. So, I mean, this might not be the worst thing in the world, but is this just another negative notch on YFN Lucci's belt with everything that he's got going on right now? Now, with that, this being your boy, Big Man, please hit that like button, please hit that subscribe button, and make sure you hit that notification bell, so that way you get a notification every time I drop this hot content,
10: and we out of here, babe. It's the Apprendi versus New Jersey decision by the U.S. Supreme Court last year. Uh, There the U.S. Supreme Court talked about what is required in order to have an enhanced maximum statutory penalty. Because our video presentation today, however, is focusing on basic guidelines application, we will not be getting into the determination of statutory penalties or looking at recent case law developments. But for those of you that are interested in Apprendi, and I'm sure that virtually everyone is, uh, the FJTN did an excellent broadcast just last month that looked at Apprendi. Uh, They did a great job. It had an expert panel that was involved in that uh, to include one of our sentencing commissioners, Judge Joe Kendall from the Northern District of Texas. Uh, So we certainly commend you uh, to to watching that video. We we think it's it's, it's an excellent one. Uh, It will be rebroadcast on a couple of occasions upcoming uh, on the FJTN network. Uh, The first will be on uh, February the 14th. Uh, I assume that that's probably like some kind of FJTN Valentine's Day special. (laughs) And then it will be shown again on March the 14th. Uh, On each of those dates, it'll be shown at both uh, noon and then again at 1 o'clock.
5: Thank you, Rusty. We're going to move on to our final segment in just a moment. But before we do that, Rusty, um, I just wanted to ask you, what do you think is one of the most important principles to remember when we're applying relevant
8: conduct?
10: Well, I think the main thing, and, and you probably gathered it from the uh, video presentation, uh, was that uh, relevant conduct uh, has to be done on an individualized determination. Uh, for each and every defendant that is uh, being sentenced and the, the, for which the guidelines are being applied, you have to go through this analysis for each and every one. Uh, And that's true even if you have multiple defendants convicted of just the same count of conviction, because that relevant conduct may be different for each of those defendants. And and you don't know that until you have gone through that analysis and that application. Uh, Now I know that sometimes, uh, if you've done it long enough, uh, it starts seeming maybe a little bit intuitive as, as to the analysis. Uh, But I think uh, always uh, a person applying the guidelines would do well to go back to the analysis and be able to articulate where in the analysis they found the relevant conduct to apply or not to apply. Uh, Because if an issue is challenged, you have to be able to go back and to justify why you did or did not include something as part of your relevant conduct.
5: Absolutely. Very good point. Okay, it's time to move on to our fourth and final segment of the videotape. It's going to focus on multiple count application, and we're also going to give you a brief discussion of departures. Remember, if you have any questions, please fax them into us now. Once again, our fax number is 1-800-488-0397. Let's go back to the videotape.
10: Of course, as you're applying guidelines, you've got to use the sentencing table, and you've got to come down the table to a certain point and across the table to a certain point to come up with your guideline range. And with multiple counts, of course, one of the practical aspects of it is, hey, well, if i got multiple counts, what point do I use going down the table? If i got multiple counts, do I have multiple points? You know, I've got to have one place that I come down so I can go across from that place What to find this one range. And the rationale for the multiple count rules, one is to determine the single offense level. By using these rules, you will be able to find that one point coming down the table that connects with that one point going across the table that gives you this one guideline range for your multiple counts of conviction. The commission in the multiple count rules is trying to keep from double counting, from punishing a defendant twice through conduct really has already been punished under one of the counts of conviction, we don't want to double punish. Uh, Also to provide incremental punishment. If someone say comes into court convicted of multiple offenses, uh, oftentimes people will get multiple punishments for multiple offenses, but typically it isn't isn't equal amounts of, of punishment. A guy convicted of five robberies probably doesn't get the the length of time under nine guidelines sentencing, uh, five times the time that the guy who committed the one robbery. Rather, it's more of an incremental increase. And our guidelines work to give incremental increases. Yeah, you'll get more time for five robberies than for one, but you're not going to get five times the amount. You're going to get a little bit more for each of the additional, what we call, harms. And to limit prosecutorial impact. If the guidelines said, oh, every time you get a counter conviction, we're going to add so much more offense levels or so much more time or whatever, prosecutors say, well, in this case, you know, I can charge 20 counts of embezzlement. Uh, in this other case, I'll just charge one count of embezzlement. And boy, we came out with a whole lot different sentence here just based on purely the way I decided to charge this conduct. And the commission has tried to limit that somewhat in these multiple count rules. Now, the commission said, we know that when you have multiple counts of conviction, you have multiple violations of law. It's, I mean, it's, it's one and the same. You violated the law multiple times, so the multiple counts of conviction. But you don't always have...